Welcome to There Is More To Our Story podcast, brought to you by Salty Gathering, a non-profit research house, event space, magazine, and now podcast. It is here we get to share the voices of Indigenous leaders, medicine women, knowledge keepers, academics, researchers, activists and speakers contributing to this knowledge weaving space, gaining a better understanding of who we are, where we have come from and where we can go to next. You can join us deeper inside of our Soul Seed House. Here we are providing the most comprehensive library of deep feminine and earth-based knowledge, inviting people to become the researcher of their own stories, their own lineage and their own ancestry, radically shifting the academic model of researchers going to study other people as outsiders. You can also join us for one of our events. We have a traveling yearly gathering that moves to a new country and culture each time by invitation. We'll be returning in the fall of 2021. You can also join us for one of our events, our retreats here in Costa Rica called Medicine is Our Nature. All information will be shared first for Soul Seed House members, but keep checking back to the website for all updates. And if you'd like to become a supporter of this work, then consider joining our Patreon community for as little as a dollar a month. You can also support by one-time donation directly on the website or consider becoming a Patreon Bloom Fund member. It is here you get to contribute a substantial amount to a research focus theme country or culture a place where we need to bring greater awareness to and a place that is usually underfunded we're so incredibly honored and grateful for all the support we've gathered on this journey so far my name is hannah ruth dyson founder of salty gathering and i'm so excited to embark on this journey together with you let's begin Hello and welcome to episode 8. This week I'm speaking to Tyson Yunker-Porter. Tyson Yunker-Porter is an academic, arts critic, a researcher who belongs to the Appalachian clan in far north Queensland, Australia. He carves traditional tools and weapons and also works as a senior lecturer in Indigenous knowledge at Deakin University in Melbourne. I was so excited to speak to Tyson and as you'll hear at the beginning of the episode, I can't rave about his book enough sand talk i recommend it to everyone i speak to so of course i recommend it to you and yeah this conversation didn't go exactly as i had imagined um, but i really respect tyson for just being exactly who he is speaking his mind uh, speaking whatever he wants to say in the moment and in that respect this episode may be triggering it may um yeah create some um moments of awakening it might bring some laughter um and i think all of it is just you know part of being in a conversation and 
I think some of what Tyson speaks to in terms of, you know, um, is there any point to being an activist, to protesting, to voting? Uh, this is if you zoom out and you kind of look at this whole system that we're part of that is really consuming itself um, and really are we making any change by doing these things? And I think the beautiful thing is when you get to this realization of like, wow, the problem is so vast and wow, it just keeps uh, manifesting itself again and again and again. Uh, you can really just drop all sense of superiority, all sense of um, I'm a good person and, you know, everyone else is uh, not. I think you get into a much more humble place and you just show up for what you care for anyway. It's like, if I can make a change in this way, let me just do it. And if not, then, you know, I'm just going to do the best I can. Um, and I think this is important, I think, especially in this moment in time when um, it can be pretty divisive out there. Um, everyone has an opinion or is too afraid to share their opinion. Uh, Tyson is definitely not that. He um, is refreshing in that sense. He has opinions and he's not afraid to express them so this is part of a living conversation I don't think Tyson is stuck in stone I think he's always evolving like we all are um, so let this be part of the conversation and I look forward to hearing from you I would love to hear what you take away from it what you agreed with what you disagreed with and yeah please join us in this conversation be part of it online on social media email us dm us in whatever way you want to communicate uh, find us on clubhouse and we'll be beginning some really beautiful conversations there soon and yeah rate review subscribe share with any loved ones and friends we'd love to hear from you enjoy Hi Tyson, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> I'm good. Um, yeah, well, first of all, I have to share that I've not been so excited by a book for a very long time. I've been uh, yapping at my husband's ear about sand talk and just, yeah, the wisdom that you shared in that book. And um, yeah, it's it's like it's been a non-linear experience for me. I keep going in and out of the book. I, I like read something and then I'm like on a whole journey again and then I have to come back to it. So um, thank you. Thank you for it so much. And yeah, I want to begin with this symbol that you um, you speak to with this, the dot and the circle around it, because this feels mm. like such a powerful um, nice. symbol and I mean, I love what you do throughout the book with symbols because it imprints something way deeper than just the linear word. These symbols, these images, they're like now imprinted in the brain. But could you speak to that symbol? Mm. Well, uh, who am I talking to? Are you, are you a mother? Yeah. Okay. A mother of two. I have a four-month-old, so I'm a new mother again. You're more qualified than I am to talk to me about that symbol. Yeah. <laughs> It's the oldest symbol on the planet, and it's something that all human beings share. You, you find it all around the world, um, etched into rock, you know, and pretty much everywhere you go. Um, yeah, it's something that you know, pretty much 10,000 years ago every human on the planet would have recognised. Yeah. I mean, you know, except for some people in Iraq and <laughs> places like that who were experimenting with the first civilizations, they kind of you know, uh, needed to separate from the mother um, and sort of destroy the mother and her role and her power um, in order to sort of make anything work. 
you know, in an extractive relation to the land, you know, which is also the mother. Yeah. So I guess it's just that circle with the point in the middle and that that uh, that dot in the middle um, is just the child and then the circle is the mother. And that's the centre of all, all, you know, reasonable uh, human communities and uh, governance systems and economic systems and um, every other system you can think of. You know, that's what uh, humans do. You know, they... they they create, um, I mean, we just create these, you know, these communities and environments and uh, land bases that we shape and we're custodians of. We create um, uh, these spaces that are optimal, you know, for um, mothers and children. And anyone who doesn't do that is can't last more than a thousand years because that's that central law. You know, there is law, there is law in the land. And we're patterned on that law, you know. Uh, so our ways of being, our social norms, our our patterns of behaviour, everything has to be patterned on that law. And that's the most fundamental thing right there, that everything we do has to feed into and therefore come out of that central relationship. Uh, you try and lock that one up, you try and restrict that one, you try and uh, damage that one, I don't know, or, you know, uh, starve it or uh, mistreat, you know, that centre, you know, in any way and uh, everything's finished. You can't last more than a 1,000 years and that's because the land, you know, will finish you. That's, that's why it's the law. There are repercussions. You know, you go against the laws of physics, you go against, you know, basically, you know, immutable laws such as you can't take more than what there is <laughs> you know, you can't breathe underwater, you know, stuff like that. You might decide to try and break that law, but you're going to drown. And that's the same way. You um, you mess with mummy and mummy will fucking smack. There's no getting around it. Yeah. And that's where we are right now. That's where we are. We, we can't last much longer in the the modern systems that have been trying to override that fundamental thing and that becoming a mother myself it's like wow like of course everything is meant to revolve around this so I can give all the energy to this baby I need that support around me and the village like it extends out from that place and then you think that's that's the future generation that's like what that's life that's what that's what we're here to to help support and to thrive and to carry but um We've come That's so far it. away it's from that. Engine, it's the engine room of everything and even of, of all knowledge um, in terms of that living knowledge transmission and the long-term storage of knowledge. It can only, it can only sit in, um, you know, a strong intergenerational, you know, culture that, that has that mother and child at the centre because if you don't have that proper nurturance, then you don't have proper intergenerational exchange. If you don't have proper intergenerational exchange, then you don't have, you know, the only infinite bloody hard drive that we we possess uh, for knowledge and information, which is, you know, handing things down from generation to generation, uh, passing on those stories um, because paper doesn't last, motherboards don't last, only mothers, <laughs> you know, and, uh, 
community centered around mothers. It's huge. And it's like uh, my work has been for the last seven years trying to map the deep feminine, which I speak to as a sort of huge archaeological record of of these symbols, of of these figures that clearly women were at the center of a thriving culture, society. And more and more that is intersected with indigenous cultures still like alive and present today. And even connected me deeper with my own indigenous cultures within Europe, within Wales, within Germany. Like there's still people who talk to the fairies in my home country. You know, there's this living spirit of the land that I'm so grateful was present in my life, even though I didn't think about that. I didn't acknowledge that fully um, until I'm older and suddenly looking back, I'm like, oh, it's still there. And um, I'm so grateful to that. But I feel there's just this pushing against this dominant narrative that tries to override everything. Like the way we've always been has been violent, dominating, extracting, warring people. This is the way I was schooled. This is the way I was taught history. So to discover like... There's so much more to history and there's so much more to our story here right now. There's so much more to the conversation, but we're so limited really by like the narrative that gets pushed down us all the time. How um, how was it for you just growing up like with different stories being told? You had your ancestral stories and then starting to be aware more and more of like I guess, the, the quote-unquote modern world, even though everyone is modernizing in their own way. But how how have you learned how to bridge uh, that? Well, look, you know, our communities now, there's uh, marked by continuity and discontinuity um, of these things that, you know, when your community is as uh, sort of disrupted as, as ours is, there aren't a lot of people who, you know... Um, who have those stories from birth in the same in the same way that people did, you know, and have for a long time. It's usually something that um, you have to really fight and struggle for um, as you go along, you know, to have access to those things. And, um, you know, some people are very lucky and fortunate to be raised <laughs> with those, you know, with their milk. But, um, yeah, that, that, that wasn't me. You know, I only had fragments and... Um, and bits and pieces that only made sense later. Um, but, you know, very grateful to have those fragments anyway. Um, you know, but there's also, um, you know, there, there are a lot of, uh, <clears throat> you know, I can't say Christ, Christian because it's not just that, you know, it's more, um, you know, I, I, well, I guess this, this weird, uh, you know, European patriarchy um, stuff from centuries ago. You know, a lot of that, those values um, have kind of been, you know, transposed over the top, you know, with our culture. And, you know, as communities that are quite, you know, habitually quite conservative, you know, about any sort of changes, you know, being implemented very carefully and very slowly, you know, because complex systems, if you, you know, introduce changes without thinking it through, and without long-term experimentation, then you can disrupt the entire system and kill everybody. So, you know, we do these things carefully. We're inherently quite conservative. Um, you know, so, you know, having a lot of these uh, sort of values imposed, like cataclysmically, you know, that that place sort of the, the man as this kind of part of familias, 
over the family and this idea of a chief who is over a tribe. You know, we, we sort of had these hierarchies imposed and a lot of people, you know, a um, century ago and even a little bit earlier than that, you know, have um, taken on board those those structures and then kind of backwards mapped it, you know, throughout our law, you know, as if this is something we've been doing since the dawn of time. But this is quite contested and particularly by a lot of women um, in our communities, um, you know, because our governance systems, you know, have never been based on permanent hierarchies and permanent hierarchical uh, unequal relations. You know, there is uh, quite a clear separation of power and authority you know, so that even the gerontocracy of elderhood is not something that can ever get out of control. So you've got all these old buddy boomers or whatever <laughs> running things and excluding everybody else from uh, decision-making. You know, we've always had those checks and balances in our law and you can see them in the stories. Um, and you can see them in the people who are speaking that law, you know, um, from, you know, the source of the law. Um but there's also, you know, there's a lot of um, just rubbish sort of come in. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of mixed up stuff going around. But but you know what's real when you when you see it. That's it. Uh, um, it's and it's it's about being able to separate your ego so that you're not just selecting the things. You know, you might feel an electric sort of aha when you hear something that aligns with your ideology, and you might feel like that that feeling. Is a something that feeling is a sign that that thing is true, but no, you've got to learn to distinguish between that and um, ancestral communication. Yeah, because there is a difference. <laughs> yeah, that's huge. I, that's look, I, and there's look, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems, particularly with you know patriarchy. There's problems in that, you know. I mean, there were things you were saying before that there's no way I could have even tracked what you were saying. Um, in the first three decades of my life as a male, you know, there are, you know, relational ways of thinking that you have just as a female and just as somebody who, who must, you know, uh, struggle to maintain, you know, uh, collective and, and consensus uh, versions of reality, which is what women do. Um, you know, that's how women survive patriarchy is by doing that, hanging on to that fragment of what women have always done and what humans, all humans used to do. Um, whereas men are kind of, you know, we're forced under the blanket of this financial system, uh, this global economic system where we're kind of forced in this industrial culture to, you know, be these isolated, you know, um, sort of tortured, um, maniacal individuals. <laughs> And, you know, it's usually not until we're a bit older and we're approaching 50 that, that, you know, things start to kick in so that we can, you know, approximate enough wisdom to even understand what women are saying half the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, um, yeah, a lot of what I, what I, and a lot of the analysis I do, I've got to try and be really careful because, you know, I do have a longing for some kind of return to them, um, you know, to the ways of thinking and being that we've lost. And, you know, um, when you have that kind of longing, you, you've got to be careful that you're not taking shortcuts, 
you know, in, in your analysis and synthesis of things. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to keep testing it. You have to keep false, trying to falsify everything that you're looking at and that you're tempted to take on board. You have to falsify that, try and falsify it a few times, and you know, because it's got to stand up to that. Yeah, it feels like the people who've gone before in terms of trying to reclaim some of this, you know, women's history or indigenous history, ancestral history, and speaking to um, these deeper stories, they've been so easily thrown out by academia because it hasn't fit within the sort of structures of belief for so long. Um, But I think it's because a little bit of what you say, like it's where we know we can feel something's true, but it's very easy to like fill in the gaps and, and like really like create a fantasy of what we are longing for, I guess. Um, And so I'm like all the time carefully, like trying to present, this is just archaeological evidence, or these are just stories and, let's have a conversation about what this could mean or yet not jumping to too many conclusions. Like, I mean, I think there's been at some point this idea of women being in power, this matriarchy of like women over. And it's very different than that, I think. I mean, it's always been changing, but I think there's more this balance, this recognition of gender imbalance, women and men and feminine, masculine. But you speak about this as well. Um, Could you share a little bit about how that shows up in your understanding with Aboriginal context? Yeah, well, um, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, when I look at our story and I look at, um, I mean, you just look at the fact of survival. It's it's not possible to have 65 plus a thousand years um, of, a, of a, a singular, you know, sustainable culture and law. I mean, it's not possible to survive that long with um, bad attitudes towards women and without, you know, give and take and equality and um, balance. And it's just not possible. You you see the, the entropy that occurs with these uh, civilizations that are continually rising and falling over the last 10,000 years. Um, You know, it's more in that when I look at that, I, I, that I see evidence that, that prior to 10,000 years ago, that simply, that, that can't have happened. You know, we see that, we see a lot of, uh, you know, cultures and even what they call species of human beings that completely died out. And, um, you know, I, <laughs> I just think it's not possible for any, you know, a particular species to survive if they're, if they're twisting the patterns of, of creation and the laws of the land so much, you know, and those laws are fairly clear and specific. You know, there is a very, you know, specific division of, of men's business and women's business. And they're very specifically like, um, you know, have their own orbits and areas of authority. And, you know, you cannot transgress that, you know. I mean, if I walk into a woman's space or see a woman's object, you know, traditionally I'm horrendously punished for that. You know, in some cases it's a capital offence. You know, there's very clearly you see that in, you know, for those of us who are still living that from day to day, you know, there's things that come in with, you know, how you, uh, you know, how you organise and put away the groceries when you come home. Um, you know, even if the ice cream's melting, they, they have to sit on the bench <laughs> for a while because, you know, transferring something from one system to the other, transferring something from, you know, a woman's hand to, 
you know, everybody else's hands and now this is, there needs to be a time of where that sits in between for that energy to change. There's all kinds of stuff because you just can't mix that energy. Uh, if I'm making food that a woman's going to eat, uh, I have to turn slightly uh, side on while I'm prepping that food. Um, you know, if I don't do that, then that sour masculine energy will get into the food and, and change it. You know, there are a million things like this. There's, you know, a, a lot of the protocols. There's a heap of protocols, um, you know, where you see how much power the in-laws um, of, a, of a, your spouse. Uh, as a man, your, your female in-laws have a lot of power over you. You're in an avoidance relationship where you're not even allowed to speak to them, but, um, you know, they can make decisions at various points about your life that can have horrendous impacts on you if you go the wrong way or do the wrong thing. You know, you can't, you cannot harm that woman without justification. You can't, you know, <clears throat> you can't just abuse somebody arbitrarily uh, or you will find yourself in a world of hurt. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, they, they, they could tell, they, I mean, they, they tell, they instruct you on how long you have to mourn for if your spouse passes away. You know, for example, there's a, a lot of things like that. Um, so, you know, I look at all those protocols, I look at all the old stories, you know, I look at the, our, our own secret sort of law business, you know, from men's side, and then just the hints of that that I hear from the woman's side, which I can't know about because that's their secret business and their domain, and just the fact of that existing and how powerfully that exists and how terrified I'm supposed to be of it and am of it, you know. Um, and then, then I look at this... Hobbesian nightmare scenario of, you know, ooga booga, bang her on the head, drag her off by the head of your cave sort of bullshit. And, you know, then all the all the civilizational stuff that comes up with the confinement and mutation and domestication and, and destruction of women, you know, from foot binding to bloody locking a damsel in a tower to bloody everything. And I just think, nah. I look at everything. Uh, so, you know, when you start to bring together everything, you start to see a bigger picture. You know, the genetic uh, discovery that, you know, throughout human history, most most of our ancestors have been women. It's like, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that most men throughout the history of our species did not win the right, were not selected uh, for breeding that only quite a small minority of men were selected for breeding. Now that, to me, you know, even, even if the idea of complete chaos and everyone running around raping everybody was true, um, then that would mean that women have had control of their fertility for time out of memory. And then, you know, even though that's women's business, enough of those things get across to me. I mean, I'm aware of the use of, I don't know how it was used because I can't know it as a man, but I'm aware that kangaroo apple has been used in the southern part of Australia for uh, time out of memory um, uh, to regulate fertility. I'm aware even now that there are huge plantations of that Australian native plant in Russia that are uh, used to develop um, uh, uh, the pill, you know, which is supposed to be this amazing thing that's freed women, that women have been enslaved since we were an amoeba 
you know, and, and now like with the invention of this miraculous, amazing fertility technology that civilization has given us, suddenly women are free and equal for the first time ever in human history. And it's such bullshit because it's, I mean, it's so ineffective. And the frustration of all the women in my life being limited to these, like, damned if you do, damned if you don't technologies. I mean, you go through the list of every single one and there's pros and cons with each that just uh, are devastating to a woman. I mean, the only good one, as far as I can see from Western medicine, is the vasectomy, um, you know, which I'm, I'm 100% for. I mean, there's pretty much, I mean, that has some, yeah, that has some uh, deleterious effects for a male that I wasn't aware of until recently. Um, you know, I was struggling with that myself, <laughs> how that works. Uh, you know, there's, yeah. There's certain energies that don't move through once you have that, and so you have to consciously find other ways to, to um, you know, do that work uh, spiritually to move those things through, or your whole lymphatic system tends to um, go nuts. I found, <laughs> but you know, at least there's a way around that. It's still the only like effective and and, and like the only modern form of contraception that doesn't completely, you know mess a woman up. I mean, where she's just rolling the dice either with her health or the, or the efficacy of it. Um, but basically kangaroo apple, you know, that was used really well. I know in the South here, but then back up home, you know, giddy beads, uh, these, these sort of red beads is a really good process for selecting which one of those to use. It's kind of deadly poison, but there's a way that you can, um, uh, work it apparently where it's, you know, it's, it's for fertility. So women have been controlling their fertility forever. You know, I keep hearing about these discs, um, that, um, and you probably heard about that, that archaeologists couldn't figure out what they were bone and shell discs with like, you know, 28, 30, 26, 32 kind of notches around them. No one could figure out what they were until there was a female archaeologist who went, man, i got one of those in my purse now. <laughs> I know what that is. You know, so, you know, women, I mean, this is a long way around it, but it's a really important topic because it kind of, it sort of unearths some of the problematics of not just, you know, the attitudes or ideologies, but about just the wrong story that, that we're holding on to about the past. You know, um, and and also the wrong stories we have about progress. You know, this idea that civilization produces this technology that liberates women. You know, that's a fallacy, mm-hmm. and that's something that's that's meant to you know. And all the stories about the past are made are pretty much there to terrify women. It's like you know, if we return to any kind of relationship with the land or sustainable civilization, I tell you, all the women would be raped and murdered. You know. Um, immediately, no woman would be safe from these these savage men who just bloody um, are naturally like beasts. You know, we only do that if we're like, you know, like any being. If we're taken out and caged and traumatized and tortured, like that's what it takes to make a monster. You know, and there's bullshit primate studies where they where they're like, you know, deciding on primate behavior by you know, removing monkeys and apes from the jungle and then putting them in a cage and torturing them and then going, oh, well, that's how that's how primates act. It's like, no, that's how anything you torture is going to act. They're going to go psychotic. You know, a woman is supposed to be, so a female ape is supposed to be in her 
kind of, you know, matriarchy that's at the core of, of ape society and it's supposed to be in that, that context of land and place and community and children, she's supposed to be in that. And then she selects her mates from there <laughs> and the males are quite peripheral. But, yeah, if you lock this, like, monogamous, you force monogamy onto these things by removing them from the jungle and locking a single female ape and a single male ape together in a cage with no stimulation and no hope, yes, after a year he's going to bite her a little. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's how you make monsters, you know. So there are a lot of assumptions about what male behaviour is and we tell these horrifying stories so it's like, no, no, make sure we keep this law and order, make sure we keep this surveillance, make sure we keep this control, make sure we keep manufacturing this consent. You need it, ladies, you need it, ladies. And then so, of course, women, you know, are going to, um, you know, want to support that. And um, and basically, men, we have to go. We, Like always, we have to follow you. We don't want to be away from... <laughs> <laughs> women, no matter how like uh, misogynistic we are, we're still going to want to be in your orbit, you know. So we're we're going to need to domesticate ourselves, you know, adequately just in order to remain in relation to you. I have plenty of um, there are plenty of people that I'm I'm not descended from, um, for for very good reason, um, but who who when. Uh, you know, um, when Europeans invaded Australia, you know, a lot of the missions were set up by abducting all the women and forcing them all into these dormitories in the missions. And that's how you get the men in. The men had to follow because otherwise, I mean, and there were plenty of men who, like I said, I'm not descended from um, because they actually said, no, stuff that, you know, we're doing our own thing. We're going to make our and they, they stayed out in the bush on their own and they continued the culture on their own and then they died. And that's finished, you know. So a lot of our culture is just what's been kept by the women uh, as much as they could keep it, you know, inside the confines of the places they were abducted to. And, you know, men have tried to keep that together as well on the peripheries, but, you know, you tend to get whipped and bloody hung and stuff like that. <laughs> Um, if you do things like speak your language and all that sort of thing. So we have done our best to hold things together. And if you look at the big pattern from all of those fragments and all the histories and all the law, but then also all the science, when you, you see the gaps in it and the, uh, the anomalous things that are going on. And even the way, I know I'm talking for too long, but I'll say this last thing because it really, it annoyed me, you know, recently, you know, because I'm in it with these... Uh, you know, they're very strict on the scientific method and on debunking things. These people I was listening to, I won't say who they were, um, but they, you know, they're all very much about the fossil record and, you know, the proof of, you know, the division of labour between men and women, you know, based on the skeletal remains and stuff. Like the not very much skeletal remains <laughs> that they have from, you know, Europe and Asia, et cetera, of, um, you know, Stone Age people. Um, so they're always around that. But then when that, when that recent discovery was made, uh, where there were a lot of women buried with hunting, full hunting kits, uh, this was problematic for them. And suddenly it's like, you know, Occam's razor no longer applies. You know, like the simplest expl explanation is the truest. 
Well, it's complicated. It's com- no, it's more complicated than that. Like for a start, you know, there's no way of proving that they're actually female skeletons. You know, you, you, there's no <laughs> way. There's no way of proving the gender of ancient skeletons. Look, uh, you know, uh, hip sizes vary, and they may have been men just with really big hips and and uh, female pelvises and signs of childbirth having occurred. That could have been men, you know, because <laughs> Occam's razor for you know. Males like the simplest solution. Occam's razor is like uh, always preferable right up until the point when it's time to shave your balls because, you know, when it comes to challenging masculinity or challenging the story of, uh, you know, patriarchy, et cetera, it's like, uh, or denying even that patriarchy exists. When it comes to that, it's like, oh, no, 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 it's, it's more complicated than that. <laughs> you know, the simplest solution doesn't apply. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a really tricky field to be in, you know, and for me, you know, I'm looking at, at lots of old story and it's sitting in a worldview of foundational knowledge, but then also, yeah, so cultural knowledge and story, but then also all everything else that's coming in, and, you know, you've got to weigh everything against that. And I think in the aggregate of all the stories, I see a narrative coming through that doesn't precisely match the old, you know, hunter-gatherer you know, division of labour along gender lines and even the gendering of people, um, I think is, I think it's been historically a bit more fluid than that. There's little bits and pieces of law coming through that I see, yeah, around that. Anyway, I talk for way too long. No, I, yeah, thank you for speaking to all of that. It's, um... I, I apologise for that. Like monologues are not really part of our culture. But I just had to, I'm just coming five minutes before we started out of a, you know, I had to do a lecture um, online. So I was in lecture mode. You're in that flow. And so I'm just bloody, I'm not even talking to you. I'm just <laughs> mansplaining stuff to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I love it all. And thank you for speaking to all of that, because I think it's what, like a lot of people don't realize. I mean, the way I was schooled um, is that, you know, things are factual. This is what we know. And this is a huge problem when we look at, I mean, treating science like it's fixed. It's always changing. It's always evolving. So when you speak about that as well with um, reproduction and uh, of course, we've throughout time, we've um, had ways and much more intelligent, wise ways to work with our body, with our cycles. And yeah, it's this um, giving ourselves power to the the man to the doctor to the you know that system like you, we need you to to help us fix this and it's um just knowing that there's these deeper ancestral ways and then what you spoke to with the archaeological record it's like what people don't realize is that we're wading through biases and prejudices left right and center like you know you look i, I just start laughing when i see some of you know you find the earliest um some of the earliest civilizations, you find just figures of the women and they're like, oh, it must have been pornographic idols. <laughs> it can't, it, like, like you say, it's not like in Viking burials, they're discovering more and more women who also, you know, were holding. That's it. Uh, and also had trade, also had money, also in charge of commerce. So it's like unraveling all of these stories and this like yeah. image that we and, have. And the lack of uh, uh, children and baby skeletons. You know, like the most of the most of the um, human remains that have been found globally have been adults. That's huge. So, 
what does that tell you about the story? You know, this idea that infant mortality has just been historically massive until civilization came along and saved the day, you know. Thank you. Early, you know, early civilization, early even industrial era, high infant mortality. But that's because we've been taking, we have been taken as human beings out of our habitat and out of our traditional knowledge and just been placed in this fledgling system and everybody just had to die. You know, we're forced to inhabit these sedentary little spaces where, of course, there's going to be disease because we're not moving through it, you know, and we're not recycling our waste. It's just stacking up in the streets. We're chucking we're like crapping in a bucket and then throwing it out of the third story window onto the street. Yeah. People are going to get sick, but the idea of turning around and going, taking those infant mortality rates and going, projecting that back onto people who lived in a landscape, even though you've got models of indigenous communities still present, we just don't have that infant mortality. You've got that controlled fertility and, you know, really careful rearing of children and you just don't have the same infant mortality rates, uh, I mean, until people are removed from their land and, and, and sort of squeezed into a small place and then you go, oh, look, look at the poor buggers. You know, they have 20 kids and, like, you know, 18 of them die. It's just awful. You know, that's, oh, thank God for civilization coming along and developing the technology to lift these poor bastards out of that. You know, ah, ah, you know, <laughs> none of it fits. The stories don't, they don't fit. And, you know, it's not about finding a more, like, uh, woke story that's going to fit with sort of, you know, someone's ideology from now of, like, you know, respecting people by, you know, uh, projecting traits backwards onto them that are going to, you know, go, oh, look, they were civilised too because they built bloody, you know, these engineering feats, you know, 10,000 years ago. So, you know, therefore these people are also civilised. Nah, nah, it's not even that. You know, this isn't about, uh, you know, being politically correct and and projecting that backwards. It's just about being, you know, a bit more correct, full stop. You know, try have some accuracy. Try have a little bit of rigour, you know, in the stories that you build because stories can heal and stories can kill. You know, That's so you it. want to make sure you got right story, or there's nothing more damaging than wrong story in this world. Yeah, and that's what we're living with right now. Like that's what we're trying to um, bring more stories to the to the to the playing field because we're starved of them in the modern, you know, again, quote unquote, modern world. And thank you for speaking to. Um, infant mortality rates I hear that all the time and it's like it's just not true and it doesn't feel true like I I'm also I've had the incredible you know privilege ability to meet some um other cultures where like have a Teresa from the Kogi tribe her mother's still alive and is like you know 103 and there's all these examples and and thriving you know um a friend went to go and meet Maria Paza in Peru and she's like also in her 90s and dancing still on the mountain, singing. It's like that's the kind of lineages these people have. But we're like again and again and again, like let's bring our healthcare to these people. Let's bring our education to these people. Let's like save these people who are still, and it, and it doesn't fit. Like you say, the stories don't align and we need to disrupt those stories in a major way 
so that we can come back into the laws of the land, right? And, but you, it's so funny because those same uh, lifestyles that, that, you know, this civilization has been like, you know, and philanthropic groups are all about lifting people out of that poverty. Oh, my God, look at those poor buggers sitting there, you know, for, for thousands of years, the same family, um, you know, drawing water from the same well um, and, you know, uh, having a pastoral relationship with the land, just, just running goats. Those poor, ignorant, uneducated people, they have no money. They, they, they exist on zero dollars a day. We have to lift them out of poverty. You know, they have to be educated. They have to have shoes. They have to, you know, and so they, they save these people and then they frack the groundwater to make soft drinks and poison. And they're in doing so they, they poison the well and then they develop that site. So these people can have development and they build them a school. And, and then it's like, oh, there's all this disease that's happening. And these poor people, they got polio now. Are we going to have to bring in some vaccines for them? You know, um, We've got to save these people. They're starving. They're starving because the land, their land is so poor. Ah, their land is poor because the groundwater's all been taken and what's left of it is poisonous because you fracked it, you bastards. Oh, but at least, you know, we're getting an education. Now, who, who are the people that get to actually live like that? Like really rich people. So you have to be like a multimillionaire in order to be able to have enough land to be able to enjoy some kind of connected existence now and that's what the rich do they do buy these big estates and they hire people to um to look after them and you know and, and they have uh, and, and they're able to hunt they're able to hunt things on that on that land you know and enjoy that that hunter gatherer relation they're able to you know uh go out and collect truffles and shit like that um you know they they buy shares in goats so they can have fresh goat cheese and <laughs> you know what I mean? They send their kids to Montessori schools so that their children can actually, you know, have some decent free range learning going on. They actually, you have to pay to live that existence of thriving. That was the word you used before. Mm -hmm. It was not a survival. It's not subsistence. That is thriving living in that way. And you have to pay to be able to do that now because we've all been removed from our landscape. Now, that's not land anymore. That's capital now. Mm -hmm. and we're not allowed on it. Otherwise, it has no value, uh, no inherent value as capital that you can borrow against uh, in this global financial system, which was invented by the Dutch, by the way. Yeah, and how... I'm really racist when it comes to the Dutch. <laughs> Why? Just because of the economic system? No, no, no. I just, um, I, it's, it's just ironic and funny. It, like, it's really funny to me, the idea of, of being racist against Dutch people. It's just, I don't know, for some reason it amuses me. Like, um, I, I like to tease people. Like, I, you know, everybody, you know, there's this kind of prejudice against redheaded people too. That just endlessly amuses me. Because <laughs> it reveals so much about the... Um, the weird arbitrary nature of race, <laughs> mm. you know, that you have this, uh, these people who are within something that's called a white race, which is, seems to me to be a polymorphic group of people of every potential colour you can think of, <laughs> and they're calling them white like as a separate thing. And there's even people in there who are orange, and it's like, uh, 
you know, this ranga. So I, I like, I gammon, gammon. We say that that means pretend, but I like, uh, I do like just little funny bits and pieces being racist against them. Um, rangas like redheaded people. Um, sort of point that out. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes people don't really get the nuance of that and they get really offended. <laughs> well, it's like we, it's, um, it's like anything that's slightly weird or slightly out of the conformity of what we believe is normal or like the system. It's like that gets attacked and that's so important, right, to a thriving culture, society. I mean, you you say you have to be um, rich these days to own this like vast amount of land and to be able to hunt on it. And it's true to a certain extent, but like at the same time, those people, I've met some of those people and they're usually the most starved. They're not thriving. They're really disconnected. And it shows you that money can't buy you that right relationship <laughs> with all things. It, it actually takes you. Because you have to, you then have to maintain your money. Mm-hmm. You have to keep killing a bunch of people in order to keep it. It's... And I've, I've heard you speak about like the importance of shifting out of um well how we move out of this economic system that's just about growth at all costs but actually the more exchanges we can have the more like that's how an economy actually thrives like the more that we're actually in relationships and allowing things to flow between us um yeah how because that's that's the that's where the value is in any like an economic economic system an economic system is, um, you know, something that is about a series of entanglements. I mean, once you trade with somebody, or once you hand something to somebody, you're entangled with them. You know, I mentioned before, like, you know, even if the ice cream's melting, you've got to leave the groceries on the bench for a couple of hours. You know what I mean? That's because there's a transfer of, you know, how, how that's going to, it's got to sit there and there's a transfer of energy that comes with that. And there's obligations that come with that. And, those things have to be worked out in that space between all those people. So, you know, you, we always have to drink our bloody ice cream because of that. <laughs> because uh, it always melts because it takes a while to figure it out. You know, and it takes a while for that, that energy to reorganize itself in the house with uh, all the hands that, that you know, the items have, have you know, been exchanged along on these massive supply chains and trade routes. Uh, you know, to bring you a tin of beans. That tin of beans going to have to sit there for a while, you know, before we know how to exchange it in the right way. You know, because there is an entanglement that happens. An echoing system is just a, it's a system of entanglements. Because once you pass some, hand something to somebody, you are connected, you're related. And it's that uh, relationship and obligation and connection. It's like a series of debits and credits that's always in motion. You know, and that's what makes uh, that's what makes your economic system work. Mm-hmm. And it's not barter. Mm. You know, barter, barter is a myth. That's not something that ever actually existed. Uh, and there's some really good evidence for that, and a few economists have made the strong argument for that um, that barter is something that was invented by uh, modern economists to try and explain what happened. What, what what happened before and how modern economic economic systems evolved. But yeah, barter has never been a quid pro quo thing. 
It's never, I'll give you a pig, you give me a bag of grain. It's never happened like that. That's not what it, it's been like. It's been quite, I mean, basically, and this is, <laughs> this shocks people, but basically traditionally human economic systems have been known are systems of credit, but it's relational credit. Mm. You know, it's, it's in this uh, sort of demand sharing economies, you know, within your local group, but then beyond it, you know, systems of obligations and credits where you're, you are, you know, passing things on to people, but then there's a, an entanglement and obligation that comes with that, which is kind of like a, there's a debit that's formed there that somebody has to answer to down the track. Uh, yeah. So credit is actually older than barter, <laughs> weirdly enough. You know, um, yeah. That shocks people to hear that. Yeah, well, I think it, like, it scares people because it's like the relationship bit. I mean, I've, I've, I've spent some time visiting some attempting conscious communities, you know, again, quote unquote, conscious communities. And it's like the relationship bit is always the bit that makes them fail because people have this deep fear of creating entanglements or there's like, let's remove ourselves far enough away from that relational aspect so that we can just get in and out and make the exchange and it's simple and then move on. Well, it, it does take a lot of energy to honor your relational obligations, you know, so you do have to be cautious, I think, in, in making them. You yeah. know, you can't, I mean, you're basically drawing upon your future stores of energy that that you'll have to be able to meet those obligations. And where once, you know, there our, our time and uh, also, you know, food and energy was so abundant that, you know, you could meet those obligations almost infinitely. I'm certainly with limits, but nothing like what there is today. You know, now you really have to carefully conserve. I mean, it's a scarce resource, your time and your energy. You know, we don't get much energy from these. The food that's left to us now to eat, you know, there's some things available that broadly resemble what food used to be and what plants used to be. Uh, they're the things that we call superfoods now. <laughs> <laughs> they're not superfoods that's just food <laughs> there's food and then there's shitty food <laughs> so they should just call everything else shitty foods and then the superfood stuff they should just call food I think um, yeah. and um, subsidize the the food and stop subsidizing all the shitty foods yeah so that it can start moving to all the communities again, rather than yeah, that's it. again that division. Hmm. Yeah, it's um this I, this deeper relational aspect. I think it's perhaps what we're missing again in our culture with without having these like profound rites of passages that really help move us into the community in a deeper way. I feel like we've not been given the roadmap necessarily we've been taught again to fear <laughs> most strangers you know most people and there's there's good with that as well of discernment learning relations again like you say like taking the time to realize is this an exchange I want to enter into um but could you speak to the rite of passage bit that um yeah that you've learned I, I can indeed uh it's just the fear of strangers things thing just triggered something interesting 
uh, just been reading a lot of, you know, uh, uh, behavioral, you know, and cognitive psychological studies that are finally being done, you know, not just with the, you know, Western educated, you know, industrialized, rich democratic people, the weird people, but are being done with uh, all kinds of people now and, and then comparative studies being done between them. And there's interesting things with the uh, kind of highly individualized, decontextualized um, industrial cultures. You know, there are a lot of deficits, but then there's also strengths. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, if you're from this industrialized, highly individualized culture, um, you're more likely uh, you're more likely to be able to um, uh, trust strangers. <laughs> Which uh, you you're actually not if you're coming from a more indigenous kind of uh, culture. You'll be highly suspicious of strangers that you're not in relation to, until you're in relation to them, mm. which is often done through exchange, you know, through economic activity. You know, is how you come into relation with people from you know who are strangers. But until then, you know, you're not going to trust those strangers. But in this uh, you know modern sort of democratic etc. Yeah, civilization. You far have far more, you know, open arms uh, to strangers. Like, and you'll trust them. Um, also, delayed gratification. You're more likely to have uh, a, a sense of delayed gratification. Uh, so you'd be able to put something off uh, for a payoff down the track. Mm. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> Apparently, but that's just in the ways that they tested them. But I have some problems with the way they framed. Um, the questions there. Anyway, that's quite interesting. But when it comes to uh, yeah, so rites of passage, this is uh, this is all about. I mean, what they're starting to refer to as adulting now. Uh, they're looking at this as a verb. A lot of the people who are trying to um, sort of re there's a lot of people trying to reform and therefore save Western civilization, and those people are using a lot of new, interesting meta language. And one of those things is adulting. <laughs> You know, so as a process uh, of becoming, you know, which is a pretty admirable way to look at it, I think. Um, you know, but basically, you know, uh, traditionally, you know, humans have been patterned on that that uh, thing where, whereby there is no adolescence. You know, you move from childhood to adulthood quite abruptly, and this happens with a transformative, you know, um, you know, series of uh, of of rituals and shocks that are. Designed. I mean, they're basically, you know, chemical, psychological, biological technologies, you know, cultural technologies that are used, um, you know, to uh, shift somebody, transform somebody, you know, from childhood to adulthood really abruptly and to grow them up fast and completely shock their system enough that they have to, they have to start growing their frontal lobe. <laughs> Like immediately, because we can't have people run around on the land with all the powers of, a, of an adult but no executive function. Jesus Christ, what would that look like? <laughs> it would look like the mess we've got right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just basically, you know, Donald Trump he has no frontal lobes, um, you know, and half the population of that continent has no frontal lobes and are just like running around madly. The United States terrifies me for that. But, you know, we're not much different here in, in Australia. We've been watching the same television for a very long time. Um, yeah. 
and basically there's yeah there is just not enough uh, to move people through adolescence quickly, which traditionally doesn't last more than a few months. Adolescence now it's years and years. Mm, but I do talk about you know the role that the education system has in that sort of freezing people in adolescence for a long time. Uh, this sort of uh, makes them into permanent children in a lot of ways and far more compliant um, with things and, and sort of suffering from a broad inability to, to see holistically uh, what's going on around them and in the world around them. Uh, the ability to attribute, you know, reasonable causes and effects to things, you know, they can just have, see a minor correlation and, and seize on that as the, you know, so, I mean, I guess that's how disinformation works. So created like this entire population that's, um, that's susceptible to disinformation so that they can be controlled, you know, by whoever is controlling the information, which is always supposed to be the government and the elites. Um, but now like so many people have access to that technology that it's just, you know, ah, everything's disinformation and everybody's running around like a headless chicken. And um, it's really interesting to watch, you know, the final stages of this sort of collapsing civilization, you know, going through its death throes. Um, but it's also a little bit terrifying. Yeah. How do you feel about it? Yeah. I, <laughs> I feel... Um... I feel it's definitely dying. I think there's people who are trying to cling on for dear life. And that's that's scary because what people will do in, in that desperation is, I mean, people like the, the super wealthy are trying to get to Mars or build their underground bunkers so that they can remove themselves. And it's like... Um, this is what we've got here. Let's try and come together and heal this now. Let's try and work together now. And I mean, I'm seeing a lot of people who are trying, who are, who are doing that as well. I, I think I'm, um, yeah, grateful to know a lot of people who are trying to find their ways. And I think the more we can contribute these stories, these other ways of seeing, these other ways of knowing. And it just like unravels the brain a little bit. Everything you've been speaking to just unravels the brain a little bit more. It's just like, that's, uh, that's not the way it is. I'm sorry. And, and you're, you're speaking something that sounds so radical because we're repeated again and again. I just like any, I'm all the time listening to stuff or reading stuff. And it's just like these same stories are repeated. Like, like you were speaking to earlier, like we're the pinnacle of progress, our civilization. And it's like, well, that's depressing. <laughs> that's like, oh, you know, we're the best that we've ever been. Like, let's be happy about that. And it's like, are you, who are you talking about? Like, who, who, who for? <laughs> In what reality? Well, look, my narratives that are challenging that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not desirous of those coming out on top and vanquishing the other narratives either. You know, it's just, um, you know, in this reality that we're in, you know, these are things that should exist alongside each other. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you look at that narrative because it's useful sometimes. But then also, you know, uh, how do you how do you also um, sit comfortably with a narrative that's as radical as mine um, and have those two things coexist alongside each other in a coherent worldview? Well, somehow that's possible. 
And it's just through the miracle of, you know, indigenous knowledge, which is a, a manifold point of view. You know, you can't create a consensus reality, you know, in the collective consciousness of, you know, humankind or a, or a culture even, or even a family. You can't have that without multiple points of view uh, sitting alongside each other, even where they're contradictory. And, um, you know, I, I, of, I mean, people are often shocked about like, wow, how come no one's, there aren't more people angry about this, <laughs> these things Tyson's saying and this, this, this outrageously radical book? You know, it's, it's because it's not asking people to abandon what they know and to take up this narrative and then bloody have some revolution or, you know, this has to be your dominant ideology now and, and we're going to push this and we're going we're gonna to force government and we're all going to vote this way and we're all going to, you know, uh, march on this place and we're going to protest that and we're going to change the way it's like, nah. You know, there's, there's no change possible. And the, the system that's been established over the last half century is that there's a very, very thin band, narrow band of wriggle room around actual policy that affects the reality Yeah, You know, neoliberalism, it's, it's a very tight mm -hmm. sort of uh, process and you're not allowed to stray very far from that. If your nation does stray very far from that, your nation will be destroyed. Yeah. You know, your people will be destroyed and somebody else will own you. You've got to be very careful and you have to stay within the rules. So what's the point of a representative democracy? What is the point of voting for somebody? It's not like they're going to be able to introduce any particular policy. What's the point in protesting about, oh, I've got to save the planet? You can't cut down those trees. What's the point in protesting? Those trees have to be cut down. Otherwise, you can't have a country anymore and someone's going to own you. That's, that's how tight, you know, the bands are of this global system that we're all under. You know, it doesn't matter how many, like, you know, little girls you get to, like, burst into tears at a Davos conference it doesn't matter. Like, yes, everybody feels that compassion and everybody would love to stop destroying everything, but nobody can. The moment anyone steps back, the moment anyone spe steps back, then they're no longer competitive. And if you're not competitive in the system, then your country falls apart, everybody starves and everybody is and, and then somebody's going to invade you and replace your government with a puppet government and they're going to frack all your goddamn water. You know, it's just like, well, no, well, if you want to keep your land and keep your people or whatever, then you have to hold that and you have to frack your water. <laughs> there, there is no, there's no escaping it. There's no, like, not doing the fracking. We all have to frack now. Because that's the problem with the multipolar trap. Somebody fracked somewhere as a way to gain a competitive advantage. So now everybody has to frack or you're completely fracked. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And these are, you know, these are mother frackers <laughs> who are returned to our original theme. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is, um, I felt like I had this kind of realization. I, w I, had, I worked in this documentary company and I only lasted a few months because I had to every day watch the most horrific things going on 
around the world. And it was just, it was just like really destroying me bit by bit. And I grew up with that neoliberal, like things are bad, like we're, no, democracy is the best thing we got. And I, that whole worldview got destroyed. And I just started seeing so much about what was going on. And it went to this complete despair, which I think a lot of people are reaching right now, that place of like, what's the point? <laughs> Let's just give up. Like, like you say, we're part of this machine that's just eating itself. It's like, we're never going to stop. A narrow band of choices. It's like, so if you do criticize that or try to suggest some changes to it, so, oh, so you're a communist then. You know, yeah, yeah. you can have one or it's one or the other. They're the two things. <laughs> Only one of those two things you can have. Um, you know, it's like, no, nah, not that. Yeah, you, you know, keep... <laughs> we've, we've we've been a, a, a an organized species with governance and and you know communal knowledge and norms for a million years. Um, you know, I, there's more than just capitalism and communism that have arisen from that. This is bullshit. Don't limit our world in that way. Yeah. Thanks for speaking to that because that is what people will automatically go to. Oh, that didn't work, communism. Yeah. Look, I, I have a, a, a good friend who's um, he's a, a complexity scientist, um, but he, he's, you know, as a polymath, he goes across all disciplines, you know, economics, everything else, you know, physics, he goes right across all the disciplines. Uh, but he started out his uh, career as an adult. Uh, he, he started out with, uh, you know, big green environmental movements, you know, massive protests, but also very, you know, clever philanthropic sort of interventions in places. And so his first big project was we're going to save these freaking elephants. You know, there was a region in Africa that they decided to intervene in and go, the poachers locally are wiping out the elephants. Within 10 years, all the elephants will be gone because uh, they're being hunted to extinction for their ivory. We're going to save those elephants. They applied so much pressure to that government. You know, they actually, um, they actually were able to put things in place to stop the poachers from getting those elephants. That's good news, eh? I mean, sure, that's success, surely. And they did write it up as a success. The only problem is that within 12 months, two other species became extinct there as a direct result of their actions. And one of those was the right rhinos in that, uh, in that area. Because all that happened was, you know, those poachers are poaching for a reason. They're existing. Their people have been displaced from the lands they're poaching on. And they're not allowed to have access to those lands. And they have to be in an economic system where they have no skills to be able to, you know, offer the marketplace. And there is no marketplace. And they're going to die if they don't poach. So now they're going to poach the last 20 white rhinos and sell those horns because, you know, they're really rare now and that'll make them lots of money and enough money to survive for a few more years, you know, before they die of starvation. You know, so... Basically, that that beautiful little environmental action and everybody mobilizing and you know changing the world, you know, all it did was result in um, the extinction of two species. And he was heartbroken. He was devastated. And that was when he went into complexity science because he went, "I need to understand how to work these complex interrelated systems. We can't just have an intervention, you know, in one discipline, in one area, in one region." and think it's not going to have vast knock-on effects elsewhere because everything does. 
you know. Yeah. That's huge. It's like it used to drive me insane when I looked at nonprofits that were like, we're going and like, you know, giving people clothing or we were giving people food. And that sounds good on the surface. And then you look like yeah, but now you've taken away someone's job it was of providing that food or providing that clothing. And it's like, and it's all this like, let's be a, let's give, let's give our charity, let's be good people. And it's like, no one wants to actually look at the entire system that's creating the conditions that we're trying to like feed or just like put a bandaid on. So it's, um, we have to take down, I mean, the whole system's crumbling anyway. What do you feel? Do you feel hope coming through, <laughs> coming through all of this, uh, all of this decay, all of this destruction? Well, you know, I, I, you just have to work within your agency and within your sphere of influence. And for me, what's what's most possible and most effective and least destructive for me to do is to just ensure that the cognitive tools and the maps and the narratives. Uh, that will be needed, you know, by our descendants are um, propagated and passed on, you know, through the only uh, permanent hard drive we have, which is, you know, um, intergenerational oral culture, as, as I've mentioned earlier, and through those, uh, you know, those relationships that are around women and children. That's all I can do that will last, you know. Yes. So that's that's what I do. That's the focus of my, you know, what other people would call activism. Do you have a place? Uh, but it's, I, I find activism to be just, um, you know, basically something to tie up um, effective thinkers in pointless activity <laughs> that goes nowhere. You know, you can convince everybody that it's the right thing. So you look at Bono and Geldof, right? They got together the richest people in the world who owned all the third world debt and got them to agree that that debt had to be forgiven. And, oh, the celebration at the time, everyone's forgotten this. It was celebrated. We've, we've done it. We've ended third world poverty. They're going to forgive the debt. They've agreed to forgive. Did they do it? Fuck no. They'll never do it. And have you heard a peep out of Bono and Geldof since then? No, because they realised they funneled all of their careers and time and energy and money and resources into something that can't happen. You know, I mean, and that's people who are very powerful and have a lot of resources. You know, I don't like Mondays as the gift that keeps giving. I mean, that that follows rich as hell off that, <laughs> off the back of that one, uh, that little sum. But even with all those resources and all the influence that he had, um, he couldn't stop his wife from coming over and marrying Australia. No. <laughs> silly. But he couldn't stop, uh, he couldn't actually change the things that he's trying to change. So how the hell do you think you're going to change it? I mean, you can convince people that policy needs to be changed. You can even get people, powerful people, to agree to change the policy, but they're not going to actually do it. They won't be allowed to do it. You know, this is a self-organizing global system and it self-corrects, it self-adjusts, it's self-organizing, it has its own intelligence now. You're not going to be able to turn it like that. It's going to have to play out. It's going to have to fall apart, you know, and it's going to, you just, for a start, you don't want to be on the bottom of it when it goes. So, you know, make sure you're ready and you're mobile 
you, you have the capacity to be mobile in your culture, but also in your cognition, your ways of thinking and being. Um, yeah, just make sure you're directing your efforts towards things that will last. You know, somebody's going to have to make sure that the cautionary tales about what exi- what happened here, you know, are going to be carried forward. We need very good analysis, but then we need very, very good translation of those analyses into cautionary tales that we can pass down. You know, and we need to be telling those stories now and painting those stories and dancing those stories and singing those stories. Um, these are the things that are going to last. That's what I wanted to speak to next is that I think it's, I mean, along my own journey, which was so focused in the mind because that's the way I was schooled to learn and take information. I've just been changed in the way that I learn and the way that I take in information. It's needed to include more ritual and ceremony and dance and song and these stories that get shared. And it's like, I feel as I sit in a circle or sit around a fire, it's like a big thing for my family to make fire and to sit around it and to just those imprints they're like small but huge like the ripple effect of that is like the remembering the reclaiming and it's like those things back locally back in the community like how can we um share more or speak more you know like connect more on these different pieces I think it is that is the I mean activism if you want to I think it has to come back into these like small like these circle spirals out like the family and 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 these rituals and song and these ways of remembering which is the soul right it's that connection yeah that's just it and but you yeah i see a lot of i don't know a lot of ideologues they don't understand what story is and what it does but you can't just say the thing Mm. and and that's i mean I, i see so much like just propaganda and you know propaganda when you see it it's the same i mean ah the children's books that anti-vaxxers do you know i mean i'm 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 quite i'm quite um um i'm not anti anti anti-vaxxer you know because i look at you know a lot of the schedule i mean i'm happy with the covid uh well i will be happy in 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 a few years with the covid vaccine when it's had some had some time to (laughs) have some longitudinal kind of stuff and some post-market surveillance, which you're supposed to do for every drug that's introduced to the market. You know, you have to have a placebo-controlled trial, and they did that with the COVID vaccine, but they haven't done it with a lot of other vaccines, most of the other vaccines. And so I'm I'm somebody who's like, yeah, no, you need to have those control trials uh, with those, and you need to have post-market surveillance as with every other medication. So I'll be there, so I'm not anti the anti-vaxxers, except that they're so stupid and they have so much like, oh, oh, they they write children's books, you know, children's books, these bastards about measles and stuff like that. And and it's so, it's so blatantly propaganda. And the thing with that propaganda is they say the thing, you know, and they say the thing directly. Look at the rats. Look at the rats and look at their beady little eyes and 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 and, and big noses. Look at the Jews. Look at the Jews. I mean, you look at the original, <laughs> that propaganda with the Nazis and all that kind of thing. You know, they say the thing. And you can't have the message coming through so directly. You know, people have to be able to graze through your story and find the message in it. There has to be agency. 
Mm. in the person that's listening to the story has to have agency because that's the only way you learn. You can't throw the message in their face. So the anti-vaxxers do that and they piss me off. And But the wokists do that too. You know, the woke are writing children's books. It's like, you know, Dora's wearing overalls. <laughs> you know, get over it. Gender is fluid, you little pricks. Like to these kids and it's like, hey, just calm down. <laughs> you can't say the thing you've got to let the story it's got to be in the story and they have to be able to find it um you know you can't be so direct um so you know ideology tends to ruin everything i've found like from anti-vaxxers to um i don't know anti-transphobes or whatever the hell you know it's like ah ah you 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 have to find the right story and you have to find a good story and, and then you pass that on and, you know, people pick it up. But your listener has to be able to maintain their agency or it's it's wrong story. You know, even the- if it's about something that's right and even if it's pushing something that is true and right and good, yeah. you're, um, you're going the wrong way with it. You're turning it evil. And, I mean, children are so attuned to that. They can tell if you're trying to force something on. You know, it's like, no, you have to allow that. Yeah, that wisdom to arise, and it's it's within all the old folk tales and myths and story. Like it's uh, you can take different things from it at different stages of your life as well, and that's and these things are always layered. Story. Yeah, and there's always different versions of the story too when it when it happens organically and yeah, demotically. You know, um, yeah. If it, if it if it's allowed to evolve in response to evolutionary pressures within a context, it it will have those layers. You know, there'll be rhizomatic stuff right deep down that um, is just nurturing the whole thing. But if you're trying to um, artificially synthesize that to force your narrative, particular narrative that you're interested in and that you're activizing around, um, then it, it, it's no good. And this is huge. You know, to... I mean, uh, you know, you, there are amazing children's books to learn about uh, ecological systems, um, but you do not want to read a children's book that Greenpeace uh, puts together because it's going to be shitty story. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because they'll be driven by getting their message across, mm. you know, rather than just by sharing good story. Yeah. And I think that's what you're, what you're speaking to this whole time. It's like it's, um, it's never in the obvious. It's never in the straight line. It's never in the, like, that's, what we do now, it's all in complexity and allowing things to show, like show, allow nature, allow the law of the land to show us, right? Because yeah. we're, we're getting in the way and we think we're helping, but actually we're just like repeating the same false patterns. You have to be in there, but be subtle, you know? I mean, as, as an artist, you know, you know, all artists know, you never say the thing. You know, show, don't tell. Mm. Never say the thing direct, you know. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I had a friend, she had the emu totem, and she was writing this poetry, and I'm like, yeah, it's good. You know, it's nice, but she was saying the thing. It's like, you know, mm. oh, you know, the white man is terrible. The white man has got me trapped and I'm stuck and I can't do anything, I can't move, I can't breathe, I can't, et cetera. You know what I mean? 
And I'm saying, all right, you, you're not, that, that's not poetry, what you're doing. It's not poetry. It's not art. I'm sorry, sister. I know I'm being harsh, but, you know, what that is is just some adolescent journaling, what you're doing right there. And that's great and everything, and probably everyone will, they'll probably print it and everyone will applaud you or whatever, but if you want it to be art, then you can't say the thing. And she had that emu totem, and I said, write a poem about an emu that's stuck in a fence. You write the poem about that as an emu totem woman, and everything that you're saying directly in there will be said so much more powerfully mm. if people are allowed to find it in that more powerful moment of drama, you know, of that animal dying and tangled up with barbed wire and the dogs are coming, etc. you know. That's it. Yeah, so I guess that would be the takeaway message here from this yarn. It says, never say the thing. If you want your message to be organic, dynamic, demotic, and intergenerationally sustainable, something that people will hand down, you allow the metaphors, that language of spirit, to speak your message. I'll take that because I have I have to remind myself that also it's like sharing because I mean we're so to to um you know create a brand to have your message across it's all about saying the thing it's all about like putting it out there to receive money to to make an impact rather than just allowing it to kind of seep into the consciousness of like sharing and bit by bit allowing that to evolve. And that's what it's about. It's, it's like allowing that slowing down and allowing ourselves to unravel and yeah, sink in. And it's so important for this time when people are more and more like in that ideology, in that political correctness, in that. And it's like, none of it feels wise or instinctual it feels like like you've spoken to quite a few times in this conversation it's like we have to accept the paradox like the the discomfort of yeah. there being more truths out there two things two things being true at the same time mm-hmm. yeah so, i mean you know you can't just have like a straight truth what you know you you have a consensus or a consensus reality and the consensus reality of human beings is what's holding this creation together. It's, you know, it's part of the informational sort of thing that actually, you know, creates something tangible out of this quantum soup that we're swimming in. You know, we, we develop these consensus realities and we develop them through story and through spatial awareness. And our cognition, our brains, I mean, you look at any, you know, brain science, you look at how your cognition happens, how it works. And it's through spatial awareness. So basically maps, you know, and, and stories, uh, narrative, narrative, the thing is the thing that coheres your worldview, uh, that coheres just your ability to take a whole heap of jumbled information and turn it into an image that your eyes are seeing. You know, it's all st- uh, story and place. Place and story, you know, that's how we cohere and that's how we build narratives. I mean, at the moment we've got, you know, 7 billion different stories all jostling for position and and supremacy and book sales, 
but um eh. but so many of them are actually very more 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 alike than they think they're not that different right? even I, book styles that's that's all old fashioned sorry like uh likes yeah <laughs> but they're not but you're but you're right because they're like that they they're not that far out of the margin of like that neoliberal what you were talking about that band like they're not that far i feel like that's why I was genuinely so excited to discover your book because I haven't been that excited about a book or like someone's contribution to the space in a long time. And it felt like your book landed in the perfect moment in my journey where it's just like all of these things that I've been trying to understand or put words to for so long, it suddenly like landed and I was just, and it's still landing in different ways. And it's, um, yeah, an amazing contribution. Thank, Thank you so that's much. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm actually going to have to go to the next thing now. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you for thank, sharing. Thank you for the yarn. It's been yeah. beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you received a lot from this conversation or knowledge share, consider supporting us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. This can be found at patreon.com forward slash gathering. You can also make a one-time donation directly on our website, soulseedgathering.com. It is here you can also become a Soul Seed House member and receive these conversations and interviews first, alongside bonus content, transcripts, and this incredible growing library of deep feminine earth-based cultural knowledge. You can also become a Patreon Bloom Fund member. This allows you to support a country or culture or theme or focus that is needing greater awareness and attention in the world. We are entirely independently funded so far, so thank you for every single amount offered to us. It really means so much. And a special thanks to our post-production by Jack Palmer for Alma Chrome. And special thanks to Temple of the Way of Light for offering us this recording by Olivia Aravello, the incredible Shabibo medicine woman, no longer with us, sharing her Ikoro, her medicine song. This was weaved into an incredible track by Jack Palmer. So again, thank you and sending so much love to wherever you are in the world. <laughs>